Welcome to the Teamwork Advantage podcast with Greg Gregory, founder of TeamsRock.com. Join us as Greg interviews thought leaders and successful team and leadership experts from professional sports to manufacturing to business and industry. Now, let's join Greg for another powerful episode of the Teamwork Advantage. Welcome back to the Teamwork Advantage, a podcast that's dedicated to the growth, development, and advancement in three key areas, teamwork, leadership, and culture. Every week, we bring you a new guest that's talking about focusing in on all three of those aspects, whether it be in business, in your personal lives, even with your kids' softball, baseball, basketball teams, all of these tools that we talk about can be used in multiple ways. It's up to you to extrapolate them, and that's what we're looking for. Today is no different. We're bringing a gentleman to us today from Nashville, Tennessee, Jeff Engel, and his background might surprise you a little bit. Of course, you all know that if you've listened to the podcast, we've had a lot of military folks on. Jeff's another one of our military folks, but how he got there and where he is today is key. Folks, one thing to remember, one of my great philosophies is if you're not growing, you're dying. And if we continue to do things we did 10 years ago, the way we did them 10 years ago, we're in trouble. And so Jeff's going to talk about that, especially with his new position that he's got today. We're excited that we've been downloaded in 79 countries and growing. So here we go, folks. Let's learn a little bit about Jeff Engel. And a little bit here, he's, he's a special ops veteran. And he's currently the president of Conquest Cyber, a top cybersecurity firm. And folks, if you don't think cybersecurity is vital, wait till you hear some of the things he's going to be chatting about today. He applies his military strategy to business leadership and everyday life challenges demonstrating how breaking established rules, and we're going to talk about breaking the rules because there's some rules that need to be broken from time to time, and conventions can create a competitive advantage. His new book, All the War They Want, is available now wherever books are sold, Amazon or wherever you happen to pick yours up. Welcome to the Teamwork Advantage, Jeff Engel. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Looking forward to it. So... I've read over your background. I've looked at your LinkedIn page and a couple of thoughts there, and I've read pieces of your book. And we, we need about a week to go over some of your background here to try and hit it. So I'm really excited, but I want to go back. You didn't wake up one day out of high school saying, I am going to be a cybersecurity president. Tell us about your story, what happened, because you've got a very interesting backstory. Yeah, uh, I definitely did not. In fact, some people would be surprised to know that I didn't even own a computer until I was 18, until after I was, I was already in the Army. Um, never had a cell phone growing up. Yeah, barely went to the library and logged in when I was in high school. Um, and it was, yeah, they were becoming more common, but I didn't really, I didn't have some of the, the financial advantages to be able to take, you know, uh, take the opportunity to, to get more ingrained in technology. So, in fact, when I went through selection, um, you know, and to, to be in one of, you know, one of my selection processes to be in a special missions unit, you know, they asked me what my biggest regret was. And I said it was not learning more about technology. So, fast forward now um, to having spent the last four years building, um, building my company and, you know, Conquest and, and, uh, and our software. And even my previous job where I was building global infectious disease surveillance software, you know, seeing me leading a technology firm is, uh, you know, it's a far cry from where it was. 
No, I, I woke up uh, one day in, you know, back when I was, you know, seven, eight years old. And I, I looked at, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm an observing guy. I looked at who in my life um, I wanted to emulate, who, who I thought set an example uh, for me to follow, and then, you know, learn from those who, who didn't as well as those who did. My, gr- my grandfather, um, he was an Army veteran, World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. And, uh, and he did things his own way, right? He had not, he had, uh, nine purple hearts. He was wounded many times. Um, he, he had spent a lot of time in combat and he, he had the best sense of humor of any person I've ever met in my life, even to this day. Uh, so he had all of those experiences, but he still built, you know, an, an incredible life for his family. Uh, and he, he went, he went as far as, you know, to buck the status quo as, he gave every one of his grandchildren a different name and he refused to call them by the name that his children gave them. So I'm not going to tell you what name he gave me, but um, I'll tell you that it was, it was, it was a lot more common in the 1940s and fifties than it is, than it is today. So I'm glad, I'm glad I'm sticking with Jeff. Uh, so he ended up passing and uh, I knew I was going to join the military. I ended up doing it at 17. Um, I had a whole plan. I was going to go, in the military, finish the education process, you know, uh, knock out at a, an associate's degree, go to warrant officer candidate school and become a, a helicopter pilot. And then eventually, you know, uh, you know, get into special forces and, you know, and then get into a special missions unit. So that whole idea, the whole plan around how I was going to proceed in life was completely nonsense. Like you, it can't even be done in that way, but I didn't have enough information to be able to um, deter me. So I got into training and September 11th happens when I was in the, the second day of the reconnaissance course for weapons of mass destruction. So, so wait a minute, that, you joined, what year was it when you uh, joined? Yeah, it was, it was April, 2001. Okay. So, so September 11th, I was in, I was in the, uh, the advanced specialty course for recon for Seaburn reconnaissance, uh, chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear reconnaissance. So, um, Needless to say, you know, they walk into the classroom, they you know, say, hey, we're, we're at war, you know, be prepared, you're going to end up going. Um, and I did, I spent, you know, I got finished with that training and I, I went to my first duty station and I got deployed. I came back from that, the, um, that deployment uh, three days before Christmas. And they, they walked onto the bus and said, don't unpack your bags, you're going right back. So, you know, I got spent the next couple of weeks getting vehicles ready, and then we went back and deployed, and then invaded Iraq. Um, so I came back from that trip and got uh, I transferred duty stations and immediately deployed again. So by the time I was, um, you know, four years into the army, I had uh, over two years in in combat. Uh, I'd been promoted to to sergeant, and I was on my way to to staff sergeant. And I got an email out of the blue that, Hey, do you want to do something different? Um, at that point I had a commendation for valor and a purple heart and, you know, had been distinguished honor grad, a bunch of courses. So, um, I said, absolutely. Um, and ended up finishing that deployment and, uh, coming back from it three weeks later, I was in a selection process and I ended up being the youngest person, um, ever hired into one of, uh, you know, so America's most elite counterterrorism organization. Um, so I, I got to learn from the best in the world. Uh, and, it, you know, it's not a hyper, hyperbole to say that. 
um, the best in the world at executing no fail missions. So yeah, after I got, I got hurt, ended up doing some assessments and on the you know, DOD red team and, and mission insurance vulnerability assessment team. That's where I kind of got broken in more into technology, um, essentially figure out how to, how to break it so you can, uh, so we can protect it. And I left the military, jumped around jobs, realized that, uh, that there was some one thing that was a common thread that I had a passion for what I thought was the greatest threat to national security. So I did, I started with weapons of mass destruction and then counterterrorism, then uh, global infectious disease, which, you know, now that we've been in COVID for three years, other people probably understand. Uh, and now cyber. Uh, I think that's the way that people are going to reach out and touch us, even without um, most sophisticated military technology. So it is the great, you know, in my, my opinion, and has been for, for many years now, the greatest threat to our national security. Um, so that's why I, I built the company to try and, and solve that complex problem. So, so it definitely was not an overnight thing. Oh, no, definitely not <laughs> overnight. Many, many years. And, and I want to stress yeah. the fact that you, you joined the military. You had to get a waiver, an age waiver, because you were not 18 years of age when that all happened. And that yeah, was I had an age waiver to come in and I got an age waiver uh, to go into special operations. Uh, I was below the minimum age then as well. Mm -hmm. So doing I, my, my father used to use the term the stick to having that ability to stick to certain things to be able to do and have that in vision was critical for you in your career lines. As I look at that, sticking to a pattern and a route and a plan, what was it? Was there something in particular that talked about in your life that tripped something that allowed you to realize, hey, um, it's okay to break some rules? Uh, breaking the rules, uh, sometimes that can be your best option. I get that. How did you, how did you know it? I think there was a there was a seminal moment. Um, it was about a seven hour period in April of 2004 that cemented in my mind and, and allowed me to, to better explain the, the necessity in breaking some, some established rules. I mean, I, I've always been a little bit of a um, anti-authoritarian uh, personality. You know, I was the one who told teachers they were wrong and, you know, and people thought I was going to be terrible with the military because, you know, you know their per perception of people who haven't been in, it's, you know, you're supposed to do what you're told, you know, and, and respect all people in positions of authority. Um, and I, I never really did. It was, you know, um, I respect people based on what they do and the alignment between what they say and what they do, not necessarily what, what rank they have. So that seven hour period, it was, um, I, essentially I saw everything go, go wrong that could possibly go wrong. Um, it was the night I was wounded and we, uh, we should not have been out that night. There was a, there was intelligence that, you know, there were, and, and a stop movement order across Baghdad that evening for any, anything less than a Bradley fighting vehicle. And at that point, you know, there were no up armored Humvees or very few of them. You know, we, we had modified some, some tracked vehicles. And uh, and got some scrap metal and welded it on the doors of the Humvees. Uh, so we go out, and as soon as we leave the gate, 
the uh, communications fails. So I was the I was the assistant patrol leader, but I was the only one who could communicate to our higher headquarters. Uh, we ended up getting up on the, the operating you know the operating post, so we observe observation post where we could see the route that we were uh, we were supposed to be monitoring. You know, and some Bradleys and tanks went past us, and yeah, got hit by IEDs and and uh, and RPGs. So eventually the call was made for us to go back we, and we couldn't take that route. So we, we took an alternate. As soon as we got on that route, uh, all the lights were cut off and, you know, um, I, I got hit with a blast. I'm not sure if it was an IED or, or an RPG, um, but an RPG skipped in front of our platoon leader's vehicle. Um, and we were, we started to get engaged with machine gun fire. So, you know, I tried to re to engage an enemy and I shot one round and, and then the weapon jammed. It was a, I was on a, a 50 cal machine gun on the top of the vehicle, uh, exposed. And at that point, you know, I'd, I, I could only see out of one eye. Um, you know, my jaw was fractured and I had shrapnel in my eye. So I told everybody to, to, to stop, you know, and the, and the rule there is you speed through the ambush. Um, but we had just gotten onto the route. So I told everybody to stop and I, I was fixing the jam and told them to turn around and go back the other way. So as they passed me, you know, I got, you know, started to, to re-engage and I had small arms that I was dealing with. And then we eventually got out, got back to the green zone. I spent the night in the hospital as they took the shrapnel out of my eye. Um, but basically communication failed, right? Um, and it failed from an intelligence communication standpoint, which is why we were out there. Um, the reason our, our, our radios weren't working as designed is because they didn't do the maintenance that they needed to. So they, they didn't, they, you actually have to clean the, uh, the antennas on those types of vehicles, especially as you drive, you know, 14 hours through the desert. Um, they misconfigured my 50 cal. So there's this thing called headspace and timing. You have to, to properly put the barrel on or else it won't allow the rounds to feed. Um, so, all of these things were happening and everybody deals with these on a regular basis, failure to communicate, failure to do proper maintenance, you know, misconfiguring things. Um, all of that led to us being in a scenario that if I would have followed the rules and said, just keep pushing through the ambush, the rest of that route, we later found out because we were doing EOD, explosive ordnance disposal support. The rest of the route was daisy chained with IEDs. So odds are we would have all, we would have all died uh, or a good chunk of us if we would have continued down that route. Uh, so it broke the rule that, you know, it saved, it saved my life without a doubt, but it was because of everything else that was going on. I, you know, I had all of the context, you know, for, you, uh, you so were I, able to it put it all into the, the proper perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And it, you know, it, at, at that point I was 19 years old. I was a 19 year old sergeant. Um, in put in this scenario and just, you know, probably had a concussion, um, definitely had shrapnel in my eye and a, and a fractured jaw. And my platoon was, you know, most of the people didn't even know what was going on because they were all huddled inside of, you know, the back of those, those tracked vehicles. Right. Uh, but that, just, you know, that split decision-making and not just doing what I was told, you know, may have been the game changer there. So let's be clear though. You broke those rules because you have greater knowledge about a lot of different things. You're not advocating that people just go break rules willy nilly. 
No, not at all. I mean, a lot of those rules are established for good reason. It's so people know what to do when they don't actually know why they're doing it. Right. That's the, you know, that's why I advocate for, if you, for breaking rules, because in order to effectively break them, you have to understand the why that those rules were created. You know, I, you know, I have some examples and they're like, these are hardcore, you know, never break these rules types of example, like leaders eat last. Right? I think there's even a book around that. It's a common thing in the military. The real impetus behind leaders eat last is you should never put your, your soldiers or your people in a position that they're having to suffer for your inability to properly resource them. But if you have good logistics, if you think through the actual requirements, it doesn't matter whether you eat first, you eat last, you eat in the middle. The bottom line is everybody's going to get fed. They're going to get what they need in order to be able to accomplish the mission. So just leaders eat last is a, you know, as a, yeah, common saying or an approach. It, it only makes sense if it's a, if it's a cop out to be able to effect, effectively plan the logistics that are needed in order to be able to execute the full mission. Um, and I, I think people fall back on rules too much and they never seek to understand what it is that made that an established rule. Yeah. yeah. Now you go back to Dr. Stephen Covey back in the eighties, you know, one of the rules is seek first to understand then be understood. You understand why the rule is in yeah. place. Then you, once you understand that, then you can proactively think about, okay, is this rule something I need to break? And prior to yeah. us getting on the podcast here, we were chatting about the discipline that the military puts there and how businesses get so entrenched in doing the routine things that it allows for creativity. And I think that's kind of what you're discussing there. Am I on the same page? Absolutely. I mean, I, businesses are probably the, and I'll say this is now having been a, a, you know, an executive and, and the, the, you know, in the C-suite chair, now for you know seven eight years people doing what they're they're perceived they're supposed to do what policy says that thing and just doing it blindly is probably the principal reason that most businesses end up failing within the first five years nobody actually seeks to understand the why and it ends up being well you know my leaders or whoever they told me to and they must be uh, all knowing, all seeing, all hearing, right? And that's just not true. I mean, there's there's nobody that's in my chair that has the perspective of every person in the organization all of the time. Most of them don't even try to achieve that. So you need people who are going to ask, you know, they're going to do it, but they're always going to be asking why. Uh, I would take somebody who, you know, asks why and says we should do this differently and continues performing what's needed while they fix it over somebody who's just going to bait their head against the wall and keep doing it because somebody told them to, you know, a hundred times out of a hundred. Right. Yeah. That goes back to the different types of followerships that there are that all tie into all of that. Let's chat a little bit about, you know, what you got, you were recruited to be in this special forces group, this special operations group, this special group that you were in pulled into you were recruit. What did that recruitment teach you um, about, I don't know, the grit? What did it teach you about uh, how to push forward through? Because you were already successful and you had thought about this, but now you were actually recruited. You didn't necessarily go in looking for it at that point. 
Yeah, my I had a whole plan that got derailed by me jumping to the end. Almost like, you know, I there was a cheat code that said, hey, this is where I wanted to go. And here's what I think I need to do in order to get there. And then, you know, I jump in, like Mario Brothers, I jump into a tube and now I'm at the end. Um, and it was uh, a surreal experience because I did not feel like I had any business being there. Okay. Uh, you know, almost like every day I needed to show up and earn it. And, you know, unfortunately, it wasn't just that I got teleported to the end to where I, I ultimately wanted to be. Shortly after I got there, my, my team leader, um, he was deployed while I was going through training and he got hit by an IED and was paralyzed. So I didn't just go from, you know, the regular conventional army where I was driving up and down roads, getting, you know, waiting to get hit by IEDs. I, I went from the regular army where I was doing that to, you know, a special missions unit to being a, being a team leader in that special missions unit, which is a, a position that's typically 35 to 40 years old, not 22. Um, and, you know, generally speaking, 15 years in the military, not four. Uh, so that, that jump and then being the next person up, uh, I think it, I, I think it made me who I am. It was, I consider those my formative years. Um, I also, you know, feel like I would love to have a do over, you know, now that I'm, I'm actually today, I'm closer to, you know, the, the age and experience of my peers, you know, from now 15, mm -hmm. 20 years ago. So it's, uh, it's, it, it was a surreal process. Um, so let, let me ask you a question if I can. Me to do, let me just jump in for a second here. I don't mean to interrupt, but fascinating that you were 22 years old. You'd only been in the Army for four years, and you're being tasked to go into something else in a more leadership role. I am assuming at that point there were several people that had more seniority, both military uh, and definitely in the age range. How were you able to gain their trust, respect, and build the team? Yeah, um, this it's funny. I've... I've Literally my entire career from, from the time I was a 19 year old sergeant and until now, um, well, now it might've shifted a little bit, but the majority of my teams have always been, been older than me and had more time. Uh, and I'll tell you the earning, earning and keeping their respect sometimes is, uh, it's, it's more about showing, it's more about the Michael Jordan that we talked about, right? showing up before practice, you know, staying longer after practice, setting an example. Um, and a lot of people don't like it. They don't like that accountability that, that Jordan brought to the, to the Bulls. You know, and I'm not saying I'm Michael Jordan, but, you know, there's only one way to, to do that. You have to perform. Mm -hmm. um, you, have to, you have to have the answers. You have to be able to help actually help them move forward, get better. Um, and, I, and I'm fortunate that, you know, in my time in special operations, everybody there feels like they have to earn it every day. Um, the sense of entitlement that you get in other places where, you know, it's I'm older, I should be in charge, or I've, you know, been doing this longer, you know, um, that is typically dealt with throughout the selection process, but it's not tolerated once you're there. At the same time, selection is an ongoing process. So if ever I didn't show up and perform, yeah. You know, everybody knew 
there was cultural accountability there that their job was to make me successful. My job was to make them successful. If anybody didn't do their job, they were going to be gone and somebody would replace them. So I think that, uh, that, that healthy fear, uh, or inferiority complex to a degree, um, even in the most elite organizations in the world is, was a massive difference maker. Um, and anywhere else you go where people get a sense of uh, superiority or a sense of entitlement, I mean, that to, to me is the, is the death knell to a team. If you feel like you deserve anything, it's already too late. So there, the key word is if you feel like you deserve it, it's too late. If you feel like you've earned it, that's a little different. So, but you said yeah. a key word there that I don't think we've actually talked about on our podcast yet. And that was cultural accountability. We've talked about accountability. We've talked about mutual accountability, but not cultural accountability. Can you elaborate on that just a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I, I put it into three different categories. They're the people who just show up every day. They wake up, they, they go for their 10 mile run. They, you know, they have drivers, whether they were they, they grew up and that was the expectation or they you know have something like religion or uh, or something else that drives them and says I'm I'm accountable to myself to my performance so that personal accountability is not something that scales because uh, everybody has different experiences different they come from different walks of life and then there's the hierarchical accountability there's the leaders gonna hey, if I don't if you don't do this then here's going to be the consequence you know and and that ends up getting dulled with time. You know, just like if you, if you're constantly screaming at your kids, they become immune to that screaming. Right. Uh -huh. um, and if you're not going to, if you, as soon as you don't follow through once, they know they got you. Yeah, so both personal and hierarchical accountability fail. Yep. Cultural accountability is literally everybody else that's around you all of the time are holding each other accountable to whatever the standard is. And if the standard is clear, Everybody knows when somebody's not holding it up. So you know, when I talk to my team, it's always about how do we foster more cultural accountability? How do we make it to where I don't have to be the one that points out that error? And people don't feel like an error or an omission is, is a death sentence. Um, and I feel like hierarchical accountability kind of forces that a bit. You know, everybody's looking to not be the one that gets stuck with a hot potato rather than Hey, we've all got to carry this thing to the end. Everybody take their turn and we pass it off. That way we avoid uh, in individually getting burned. So cultural accountability is something that we had in, in special operations. You know, if you, and it ends up tying together where hierarchical accountability isn't really needed because it's self-policing. And yeah, the way my, my troop sergeant major framed it, he said, would you rather soar like an eagle because you're surrounded by other eagles or soar like an eagle because you're surrounded by turkeys? Because if you don't have that, all you have to do is just fly it just high enough to be above everyone else. But when you get into uh, an elite organization with cultural accountability, you, you're constantly pushing the, you know, the height of the, of the team and you're never going to be falling. You're never going to be kind of diving down and bringing everybody down to the level of those turkeys. You're constantly lifting each other up. So Absolutely. how do you bring somebody along? Let's look at in business because in the military, it's one way. But in business, what do you teach leaders to do? How do you work with leaders 
to really create that cultural accountability into an organization where people like, maybe they're in level one, maybe they drive to do what they do, or maybe they're just like, I'm waiting to be told what to do. I am the robot. Time to make the donuts type thing. Yeah. So I'm first is you got to model it. You have to model the behavior. Okay. Much I th- like, I, I'm sorry. Much, I thought you said bottle it. You said model it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I wish there were, I wish I could bottle it. That would be, uh, that'd be a, de- a game changing business. No, you have to model the behavior. You know, I, I tell people all the time, you know, running a business is much like raising children. You know, you can tell them anything that you want, but ultimately they become just like you because they're watching, you know, and it's, and the example that you're setting is far more influential than the things that you say. So when I'm talking to, to my leaders, I'm talking about how to model the right behaviors, you know, and if there's a problem with you modeling those behaviors, let's get, through, let's, let's understand what the driver is behind that. Because if I can't fix it, then you shouldn't be a leader in the organization that we're in. Uh, so that's the, the most critical element. And then you, you have to be a, you have to be the kind of person that doesn't follow the, the traditional business rules because every what you have to be a good judge of talents for example with what they did with me you know i was a 21 year old sergeant that they had massive analytics to identify of all of these people in the military who we thought who they wanted to bring in and in, and still how they did that is un, you know unknown to me but i've done that personally where i've identified some people who who had the right ingredients i've had Many of my leaders today, I either worked for them at one point, like the, the, you know, in my team, I've either worked for them at one point or they, I pulled them from a different world where they were, you know, an intern in college or they were doing a different function in another company. And I looked for mission alignment. So do they actually, could they actually embrace the mission that we have as an organization and then demonstrate the right behaviors uh, and if they did, I pulled them up very rapidly. There are people in my, in my company that have gone from, in, in the time I've known them, six or seven years, have gone from interns to executives. At the same time, there are people who who just love being a machine gunner, right? They're an engineer. They just want to be an engineer. And, and that's know, okay, those, too. We just need to enable them. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's encouraged. Like, you know, leadership is not... Um, it's it's not necessarily the only route to success. Right. Leadership is also not something that's really positional. Right. That those engineers who are just who are staying engineers, they're exhibiting and modeling the right behaviors for the team for people who ultimately may end up be being their boss, um, but definitely for team members who come in and are saying this is the kind of behavior I want to emulate. I want and I want to take a piece of this and I want to take a piece of this and that's who I, ultimately I want to become. Okay. Um, but modeling those behaviors and then and then treating selection as an ongoing process and not following any of those rules around years of experience or certifications or any of that. Really, you know, it's attitude. Skills can all be taught. And with what we do, it's you know, it's a mindset you know, more than it is anything else. What would you say to someone today, someone who's in their, anywhere from their mid to late 20s up to their mid 30s, who's looking to move up and become a better leader? Maybe they're a team lead in their organization today. Maybe they're just getting into the possibility of thinking about leadership. 
What is something you would tell them to do today that would help enhance that for them? I would tell them, find, find something that's worth fighting and winning for. Here's the problem that I see most of the time. People, they, they want the next level because they think that, that next level comes with people listening to them more or more money or that type of thing. Leadership is, is not about that. It's about impact. If you don't have something that you care about more than, uh, than anybody else that you just want to make more of an impact with, then you're actually doing a disservice to your team by being the one that they're looking, looking to. Because if you don't embrace, model the behavior of embracing the mission and finding ways to solve those complex problems and have an, an outsized impact, then you're not really looking to be a leader. You're looking for higher levels of management. And man, you manage things, not people. You lead people. And if you're leading people and you don't believe in what you're doing, then, you're, then don't do it. Right? Yeah. You're, you're, you're really hurting everybody. By, you're hurting yourself and the by, team. If you were, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. If you can't figure out why it, your why and wake up every morning and want to do it, um, you can't. If you think about leadership as a as a job rather than being part of your life, then yeah, you're already it's already too late. I think there's a there's a fundamental error in your your decision making process that ultimately is gonna is gonna hurt you and the rest of the team. Okay, let's look at that other side of that coin now. Let's assume that you're in your senior ish or a middle management position, regardless of your age at this point. You're in that position. And you are now looking for somebody, looking for that next leader. Okay, you've been modeling the behavior. You're watching for people that may be modeling some of that behavior. What are you trying to secretly look for, if you will? And I hate to use that word secretly, but what are you yeah. looking for? Their, their reaction to failure. Mm. It's that I, I give them opportunities to fail. And most people are like, oh, you want to give people opportunities to succeed. Like success is easy, right? Everybody hoists the trophy and is happy. Uh, but how do they react when they don't know what they're supposed to do when they fail, when they fail their team? Because ultimately, in order to be successful, you have to be willing and open to trying things that you aren't good at, that you don't know how to do. You have to provide guidance to people when you don't know how to do it yourself. And if you can't effectively fail, right, uh, if you can't take that failure and turn it into to positive growth, you can't give people space to feel like they can make mistakes, then you really shouldn't be leading. Otherwise, it's, well, I mean, what are we leading it towards if we're not solving problems? If solving problems inevitably requires you to try things that don't work. So I give, I give people opportunities to fail. Uh, like, Tom, like Thomas Edison said. Thomas Edison said, I never found a way the light bulb didn't work. I just found 700, and, or excuse me, I never, I never failed at inventing the light bulb. I only found 700 and some odd ways it didn't work. Absolutely. Yeah. And this is where science, so I think scientists actually have a lot to, a lot of value that they can provide to people within the corporate world in their mentality around failure. And yeah, I worked with scientists a lot, um, and I would say that some of them are very, very good people. Some of them are very, very annoying people. But 
But ultimately, when you talk to a scientist and you say you were wrong, they never accept that they were wrong. All, they, all they'll accept was we made the analysis based on the data. We structured an effective test. We evaluated the results of that test. The, the results, whether they were uh, negative or aligned with the hypothesis, both created value for the scientific community. Get it published. So everybody else knows, here's how we did the evaluation. Here's what the results were. Here's what we expected to happen. Here's what actually happened. And here's, here are our findings. And it gets peer reviewed. And then it get, becomes part of the knowledge that we all can, can access now. Yep. That's part the of the knowledge that, that we share become, it becomes part of our knowledge base. And the more Absolutely. we build our knowledge base, the stronger our knowledge base gets, the stronger the team gets, and we lift the whole team. Absolutely. The only, so now, giving people opportunities to fail, as an example. There, there's, there's all these lists of like 10 things that don't require any talent, right? They don't require any skill. It's just, you know, showing up on time, doing what you say you're going to do, right? all of those kind of basics that's where people if if you you know having a project that you didn't know how to do and you're and i knew they didn't know how to do it um and it doesn't work out you know as designs becomes knowledge it's valuable not showing up to meetings on time not being present when you're there um not hitting deadlines that you agreed to accepted not communicating because you're uncomfortable with the fact that what you're communicating may not be positively received. That's where people ultimately fail. Um, and, and that I think is way more common pra um, practice, you know, in, in corporate America than, uh, than we would want. And, and then blaming other people, you know, for whatever the you know, reason was that's, that's where people, when they get, they're given an opportunity to fail, if they if they come back to me and say it didn't work out, but here are all the other the reasons why it's somebody else's fault, that to me is a good sign that they probably should not be in, in mm -hmm. you know areas where they have more leaders that they're trying to build. Yeah. So what is Conquest Cyber into today and what that you can talk about and where you're struggling with sure. your teams and the challenges with your people today? Sure. So we protect critical infrastructure. That's what we do. Um, mm -hmm. So everything from healthcare systems to financial services, the, yeah, the way we frame it is the sectors that are critical to our way of life. Our job is to help make them more resilient. Uh, and because what we do is out of the norm, right? Most the cybersecurity companies or information security, they're trying to meet a compliance requirement, or they're just doing some sort of monitoring. We're actually getting in there and saying, we know you're going to get attacked by the most sophisticated nation state level, level adversaries. And when they're focused on you, they're going to get in. Uh, so we need to focus on resilience, not, you know, preventing what, you know, what we can predict and adapting to everything else. So where, where I struggle is in, in our, well, where we all struggle is in our DNA is change. It's adaptation to the changing operational environment. Uh, and people don't like to read work or change. The general rule I say is like, you know, people want comfort, credit, credibility, or they, uh, clarity, and then somebody else to blame when things go wrong. So we've turned that on its head and like the DNA that's required in order to do this, you have to be able to, you have to be willing to read work and change 
and you have to be able to do it without clarity, without comfort, with, without credit in most cases, and with nobody else to blame when something goes wrong. So having a recruitment and selection process that continues to feed that. We've lost your voice. Is not for the faint of heart, okay. I would say, uh, right. because you it want to requires just, you to do you a lot. You want to back up just others. a little bit? We lost a little bit of your audio there. Sure. So being in a, uh, an organization like ours with this mission that's, you know, dealing with the most sophisticated adversaries uh, requires an elite team. And that elite performance on a, waking up every day and not ha having the ability to have that selection process like you would have in, you know, special operations, bringing that into corporate culture um, is, is definitely not for the faint of heart. Okay. And that's, that's the tough part with organizations getting them to scale in the right direction, being able to be, in essence, be fluid with what's happening because you are definitely in a very fluid business. There's no doubt. So let's yeah, talk a little bit a, about your book. Fluid, our, and, and, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it's, it's fluid and it's 24, seven, 365. I mean, so there's no way to, you know, we can't even get have a meeting where everybody in the company is is at that meeting, right? So fostering the culture and and enabling cultural accountability all of the time is uh, is something that that we can't we are constantly fighting for. Okay, and that that's that's trying to keep that accountability. And again, I really love the term cultural accountability. It ties right into exactly what the TLC advantage is all about with our teamwork programs. Tell us a little bit about your book. I mean, the title is All the War They Want. Now, you're not talking about in the military. You're not talking about all the challenges we're facing worldwide. What are you talking about? Tell us a little quick synopsis about the book. Sure. It's simply uh, a structured approach to solving the world's most complex problems. You know, it's informed by my experiences in, in the military and jujitsu and, you know, and, and generally uh, fighting in an upbringing to, you know, um, to not accept the status quo as a life sentence. So I use a bit of cyber and our, our focus in, in part one and then talk about how to effectively identify other key plank holders in order and then structure it to where people from all different walks of life and, and experiences can understand and embrace the core mission. And then what the role of the leader is in all of that to build and enable the team, resist the urge to manage and ultimately to foster cultural accountability. Um, so it's a, it's a formula to, to find something worth fighting for in your own mind, whether it be my mission or something else. Um, but so it's, it works to be able for to both apply leaders. It's going to work for both leaders as well as followers in an organization. It's designed for anybody. It's not just designed for CEOs. Absolutely. It's designed, you know, whether you have a, a cause that you care about, a family you want to fight for, you know, a, okay. a, a sports team that you're on, it, it doesn't really matter. But if you're going to fight, you should win. Right? You should be fighting to win. Otherwise, it's not worth you know, getting into the, into the fight at all. Okay. As I said when we started off, Jeff, we, we could go on for a long time about this. We never really got into the cybersecurity aspect of things. Um, if there's one thing that you could tell folks today about protecting themselves, 
from cyber attacks, whether it's individuals, their phones, their PCs, their tablets, or an organization? What is something, what's one thing that you would tell people from a cyber protection thing they, they need to do? Uh, one thing is hard when uh, there's a lot of things that you need to do. Mm-hmm. You know, um, multi-factor authentication, passwords, um, monitoring. Uh, you should be monitoring everything. You know, eliminate all the stuff that you don't need. You know, don't have 57 credit cards if you don't need them, which you don't. Um, eliminate all the things you don't need. Simplify what you do and automate everything you can uh, to where you're you have transparency because. You know, it's only a matter of time. You probably are already compromised. Uh, yeah, I say that it's true for most of the listeners. They're already compromised. So how bad do you want that to be is, is up to you. Okay. Cybersecurity, military, cultural accountability, it all came out in today's session. Jeff, if folks need to reach out to you, what's a good way that they might find you? So I'm on LinkedIn. It's uh, the long form, fancy version of my name. You know, Jeffrey J. Engel. Um, I'm on Twitter, Jeff underscore conquest. Uh, and we'll pass along the, uh, the the rest of the contact info if anybody wants to reach out. Um, okay. I'm always happy to connect and engage. And we're going to put it out there. When we post everything about our stuff, we'll post your uh, social media contacts out there as well. I'm excited to learn more. I'm excited to watch what uh, Conquest does. Teamwork at every level is critical. And the thing we hit on today, again, I'm going back to it, is cultural accountability. Folks, the Teamwork Advantage is one of those podcasts where you can actually get information that you can start to implement immediately. I wrote down several notes here today. I'm gonna go back and make down, write down some more notes. Teamwork Advantage is designed so that you can walk out with something you can implement tomorrow. And Jeff gave us some of that. Remember, The Teamwork Advantage focuses in on teamwork, leadership, and culture. And when you listen to this podcast, you're not average because having a good day is just being average. When you listen to this, you're not average. So go make today an excellent and exceptional day. Until next time, take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Teamwork Advantage with Greg Gregory. To learn more about how Greg can help your organization develop a powerful winning culture, visit TeamsRock.com. That's T-E-A-M-S-R-O-C-K.com. Be sure to join Greg next week when he interviews another exciting and powerful thought leader on The Teamwork Advantage. Until then, as Greg says, make sure you have a great week because a good week is just being average.